Hi, I'm Loreto Rojas. And I'm Cal Winslow. It's good to be back here today and especially because we have a very special program. Yes, we are going to take a close look at one of the fundamental issues of our times here on the coast. We're going to have an in-depth look at some of the controversies concerning the present state and future of Jackson State Forest, our 48,000 acre publicly owned forest, a forest for many of us is literally a neighbor. These controversies are not new. They won't be settled soon. Still, they are important, existential even, part of a bigger question concerning the very fate of our earth, sea level rise, global warming, and economic catastrophe, our fate. Today, we'll talk about one of these controversies, forestry, and how it fits in with these wider issues. Our guest is Will Russell. Will uh, is special here on the Mendocino Coast. He's, so to speak, he's one of us. He grew up here, partly, spending summers in the trees on, on his grandparents' place just south of Big River. He's lived and worked here off and on through most of his life, including as he pursued an education in forestry. Some of us will remember with pride Will as a sort of long-haired youngster, just beginning a career that now finds him at the top of his field, one of the outstanding scientists in the field of forest ecology. He's a still frequent visitor to Mendocino County, often with graduate students in tow, working in the forests here, including Jackson State. Welcome, Bill. Well, thank you so much for having me. Let me say just a couple more things, Will. Uh, you received a, a doctorate from the University of California at Berkeley in environmental science policy and management. You have a master's in environmental studies from San Jose State University, an undergraduate degree from the University of Santa Cruz. And uh, you're a professor of environmental studies at San Jose State University, and your research primarily focuses on the conservation and restoration of forest communities. Correct me if I'm wrong in any of this, but I read that you report particularly on the direct and indirect effects of logging on coastal redwood forests. And along with this on forest ecology and ecosystem restoration. Thank you for inviting me. It's really good to meet you, Loreto and Cal. And uh, for the wonderful introduction, uh, the only thing I would add is that uh, before I went to UC Santa Cruz, I got my transfer degree at the College of the Redwoods in Fort Bragg before they even built the campus. So uh, great education start on the Mendocino Coast. Thank you so okay. much for mentioning that. Uh, many of our kids, uh, we encourage them to go to the local college because that uh, allows them to be in a small college to develop their skills before they go into the big picture, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but before we start with all the questions, I wanted to add that also you have done extensive work on ecological disturbance in the Sierra Nevada mixed conifer forest as well as research on the restoration of coastal dune communities. In addition, Will has taught in the public schools at both primary and secondary level, level and has an 
abiding interest in developing methods for improving the ways that environmental issues are taught to our children. He is currently involved in developing research projects aimed at measuring the effectiveness of environmental education programs in the public and private sectors. So we thank you for that work also. On the lighter side, tell us a little bit about your summers here as a, as a youngster and, and maybe what Mendocino means to you. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, it was always a, a magical and wonderful place for me. And I, I started coming up here before I was old enough to know I was. And when I was just a baby in my mother's arms, we'd come up and uh, spend the summers with my, my uh, Nona and uh, my grandpa. My grandfather and grandmother were bohemians of the old school. My grandmother was one of the first women at uh, UC Berkeley to graduate in the 1920s. She graduated with a degree in Spanish, actually. And uh, my grandfather was, was expelled from UC Berkeley for uh, Bolshevism, atheism, and lascivious language. Uh, as he published a newspaper, he was the editor of a newspaper called The Occidental, uh, which was a politically active newspaper at his time. He received his degree posthumously in 1990, uh, 70 years after uh, they, they expelled him. Any case, uh, he was a force activist as well. And uh, my grandfather, uh, Lewis Russell, died of a heart attack in the Ukiah County Courthouse after giving a testimony against a timber harvest in Mendocino County in 1972. Uh, and this profoundly affected me. I made a promise to him and a promise to the Redwood Forest of Mendocino that I would do everything I could to try to protect them from needless timber harvesting in the future. So that's the sad part of the story, uh, but uh, mostly it was a story of happy nurturing on this 120 acre old growth preserve that they had uh, purchased in the 40s. I lived there with my grandmother and went to uh, College of the Redwoods uh, from when I was 18 till 21 or so. And then I, I've lived there all told about 10 years in different chunks of time. That property uh, that my grandparents owned is now State Park. And I'm very happy to say State Park is still holding true to the idea of uh, preserving redwoods, at least on the Mendocino coast. I'm a little concerned about what's going on further north in Redwood National Park, uh, where commercial timber harvesting is happening within the national park. Um, this is unprecedented. Why don't we jump right into this? Tell us why you think redwood trees are important uh, in general and uh, today. What's unique about them? Well, they're an incredible uh, relic species. Uh, they they uh, date back to the Jurassic period. The redwood trees were around when dinosaurs were around. Um, they have been around forever. Uh, at one point, there was the ancestors of the redwood trees across the Northern Hemisphere, uh, what is now Eurasia and North America. And what we have left are these very few small pockets of their descendants, uh, the coast redwood, uh, the giant sequoia, both of those in California, of course, and then the dawn redwood in China. And that's all that's left of this amazing species or these, uh, this lineage. So they have that, they, they have incredible association of species that depend on them. The coast redwood particularly creates an environment that is damp and dark. And anyone who spent time living in the redwood forest knows how damp and dark it is. And while that may not be the best environmental conditions for humans to live under, it 
is for a whole variety of, of understory plant species and all the wildlife species that depend on those as well. So it's ecologically unique. It's very unusual as a coniferous species in that it uh, regenerates clonally. So where most conifers depend on seeds for regeneration, coast redwoods regenerate as a cluster of sisters in a sense. And uh, this is interesting and unique, but also is very important in terms of their ecology. It affects the way they grow, it affects the way they regenerate after disturbance. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of the management we've done with redwoods has been based on other coniferous forests. Uh, right, it needs to be an understanding of what it is about them because when we uh, walk around the forest, we can see the old stumps of the giant redwoods that were first uh, logged here uh, heavily in the uh, late 1800s and beginning of the 1900s, right? And then we see these clusters, that, uh, something we call here the family redwood forests now because we see all these little seedlings or trees growing around. But uh, before we move into um, in depth um, of these topics, I, I wanted to ask you about how many, um, is, um, how many other organisms live in the forest beside the trees? Because some people, as the saying goes, the trees don't let them see the forest, right? So we just see the trees, but actually there are many um, other species and animals and creatures. So could you talk a little bit about that? that sure. yeah, it's, it's also an interesting thing about coast redwood forests is that they are relatively species poor. Uh, they have low species diversity compared to a lot of places. However, the species that live in there are very unique and dependent on those conditions. So we have understory species like uh, the trillium, um, the redwood violets, the oxalis, uh, the fairy bells, uh, so many of these understory little plant species you might not notice while you're walking around the woods, but if you look down, you'll see them, especially this time of year, all in flower. Uh, and they are shade um, tolerant, shade dependent species that uh, when you remove the canopy uh, are immediately affected by an increase in temperature and decrease in, in um, moisture. Uh, and there's a variety of wildlife species that are dependent on these conditions as well. We all know the banana slug, particularly those of us who went to UC Santa Cruz. Uh, the <laughs> banana slug uh, is yeah, because you have to kiss the banana slug. No? <laughs> yeah, I used to ask my students to do that in my forest ecology class, and I don't anymore because I was worried about the banana slugs. I think they didn't really enjoy being kissed, and so we don't do that anymore. Uh, but uh, they're completely dependent on the, the moist, shady conditions of the redwood forest. And then, there, of course, there's some endangered wildlife species, the marbled merlet of the northern spotted owl, which are dependent on, not just on redwood conditions, but on old growth conditions. So uh, even, even in a more shaky situation there. I think, it, it, tell me if it's fair to say this, that uh, up until not so long ago, most of the discussion about saving the redwood forest, which we all know is uh, most of it is long, the old growth is long gone, but most of the discussion was about the uh, overwhelming beauty of the forest and the spiritual aspects of the experience of being in a 
redwood forest. Uh, I think you, if you, you might say something about that, but right now, I think we want to get in for our listeners. Uh, we want to get into the issue of the redwood forest and the climate. And I think this is a tough one, but I think you have had a lot to say about it. The whole issue of the redwood forest and, and carbon and the climate, could you tell us? And, and this is something, by the way, Will, which um, people talk about these things, but myself included, we don't really know a lot about this subject. So don't take too much for granted. Uh, you got some dummies <laughs> in, the, in the audience. Um, I think we've got some pretty bright people in the audience if they're tuning into this show. But thank you for introducing the, the question of climate change. It's something that's on everybody's mind, or at least it should be. And normally when we're talking about climate change, we're talking about the problems associated with it, which obviously are very important. Uh, human survival, uh, the survival of other species, you know, massive changes to the ecology of the planet. All of these things are really important. And um, the redwood forest is dependent on some very, uh, very strict climatic conditions, the coastal fog and things like that, which we are concerned might change with climate change. Um, in the southern part of the range where I live now in Santa Cruz County, we are particularly concerned about increases in fire frequency and severity. Now we had this huge CZU fire last year that I was evacuated from. And um, it's, it is quite likely that with climate change, we will see an increase in frequency intensity of, of fires. So there are all the risks that we think about. But when we're talking about redwood forests, we can also think about opportunities because the redwood forest is the greatest terrestrial carbon sink on the planet. Several times more than any other ecosystem. Carbon sink. Could you tell us exactly what you mean by that? Sure. Uh, carbon sink is a place where carbon can be stored and uh, for a long period of time. So somewhere that carbon will be absorbed and then stored for a long period of time. And uh, simply because of the biomass held in a redwood forest, that alone gives us an advantage over anything else. And then the longevity of the species as well helps to give it an advantage. And it's not just the trees themselves, but the ecosystem as a whole is storing carbon. About half of the carbon in a redwood forest is stored in the soil. So in a healthy redwood forest, the trees continue growing, continue putting on more growth every year the older they are, the more growth they put on. So uh, there's sort of an old, I shouldn't say old fashioned, there, there's a notion in forestry that younger trees put on carbon faster, they grow faster. And that is, that is true in some forest types. Um, if you're up in the Sierra Nevada, for example, you have the young trees growing quickly and then the, the growth can kind of flatten out at some point. Right before that doesn't appear to be the case. They continue putting on more carbon the older they are in the ecosystem as a whole. So the older the forest, the better, and it just keeps storing more carbon every year, and it will store it for as long as it is not disturbed in some significant way. Sorry to interrupt you, but this is one of the issues, right? That people, some people will say, well, if they grow so fast, uh, what's the problem about cutting them down? 
Yeah, and that that's a really good question because a lot of folks are arguing we should we should cut them and then grow them again because they grow faster when they're young. And uh, it's true for an individual tree. Uh, an individual tree puts on its most growth when it's young. But if you're looking at the forest in a per area way, which is much more to the point when you're thinking about carbon storage, you have much less carbon being taken in per year in a young forest than you do in an older forest, if that makes sense. Uh, because per acre, you may have a whole lot of little trees growing fast. It's fast for them, for their growth, but uh, a bunch of big trees on the same acre are gonna be holding more carbon. It's sort of like if we think about our own children, that our children grow faster when they're little, but they're holding more carbon when they're big, right? <laughs> I'm holding more carbon right now than my daughter is. Um, I've been storing it for you know almost 60 years and, and it's gonna be in there a little while longer. Uh, the nice thing about the redwood trees is that they don't just hold it for 60 or 80 years, they hold it for thousands of years and they keep putting on more every year. Um, so a giant old growth redwood tree is holding many, many more times as much carbon as a, as a young redwood tree, even though the young redwood tree may be growing faster, um, it's, it's not holding the same amount. Right, and this is what it really helps with the uh, global warming, because by sequestering all that carbon, we uh, have a means or, or, well, we benefit from the tree sequestering this carbon and helping us to stop a little bit of the global warming that we produce with our cars and industry and many other things related to modern life. Exactly. So we're creating this carbon dioxide by driving cars around and, and burning fossil fuels. And uh, plants take in that carbon dioxide as part of the photosynthetic cycle. And um, they store it in their, in their tissues as they grow. Um, all plants are doing that. So anytime you're growing a plant, you're sequestering carbon. But what we're looking for is ecosystems that can hold a lot of it for a long period of time. Um, if we can get a, a you know ecosystem holding thousands of tons of carbon, millions of tons of carbon uh, for thousands of years, that could give us a little time to you know change the way we do business and get past this this current emergency of climate change. Well, did you tell me that in comparison to other forests, the redwood forest is um, unique in terms of storing carbon? How does it compare to, um, say, the northern forests or the Amazon? Redwoods are number one. They are the number one terrestrial carbon storer. So greater than the Douglas fir forest, greater than the boreal forest, greater than the rainforest in terms of the amount of carbon that can be stored per acre. Uh, it doesn't mean that we should ignore all these other forest types. We need to be trying to sequester carbon in you know, as many different ecosystems as possible. But when you have um, a forest type like coastal redwoods, and, and there's been different, different calculations done on this, I've seen anywhere from two times to six times more than any other terrestrial vegetation type. When you have an opportunity like that, I think about the value of this forest. And like you said, I mean, we can all talk about spiritual value and beauty, but we're not gonna sell that politically. We're not gonna sell that economically, but we can sell the value of the, the Coast Redwood Forest as a carbon sink. It is number one in the world for that. So why not use it for that rather than for, uh, you know, timber products for making fences and decks and things like that. It has another 
another value, another human value that we can associate with it, which is much greater than, than uh, you know, any sort of uh, value for we can get from timber products. Let's pause here. This is Loretta Rojas and Cal Winslow, your hosts today. And this is KZYX, Mendocino Community Listener Supported Radio. And our guest today is Will Russell. And Will is the Professor of Environmental Studies at San Jose State University. And uh, we've been talking uh, a little about uh, Will's work and uh, more generally about the forests of our time and how they're connected to our, our fate. So, well, here on the coast, we are mostly likely to hear about the benefits of logging. I mean, the, the whole industry of logging was part of the development of the area. That's what they tell us. And the benefits of selecting, cutting, or thinning, what they call the management, supposedly is not as bad as it used to be in the old days. So could you please comment about this big industry? I know it's a lot. Yeah, well, I'd say the benefits are great and the benefits are economic. Logging helped fuel the economic development of the Mendocino Coast and that was a good thing or a bad thing depending on who you were, but uh, it continues to be an important economic driver in the region. And I think recognizing that, understanding that is essential in trying to, to move forward. There's been talk of restoring Jackson State Forest, preserving Jackson State Forest for years. And I don't think that's gonna happen until uh, we fully recognize the importance of the revenue flow from timber products out of Jackson, Jackson State Forest. It is not insignificant. It's an important revenue flow for certain agencies and industries. And so if we're gonna move away from that revenue flow, we're gonna to have to offer something else. We're gonna to have to replace it uh, with something else. And um, the value of carbon as a carbon sink is something that comes to mind as a place where we might mitigate the loss of some of this revenue flow. There's a global carbon market people are paying to store carbon. Industries that want to produce carbon are looking for places to mitigate that by paying to store it elsewhere. And um, I know there's, there's certain areas uh, where people are doing this in the Redwoods already. Um, I have free friends down in the Sea Ranch community and they are working on a deal right now. I think it's, it's already set in fact that they're going to stop uh, any logging procedures on their community forest and, and turn it over to carbon credit. And they're being, uh, they're being paid for this. Right, and this is the way that the economy is being dealing with the issue of polluting, right? So instead of stopping the pollution, big corporations or businesses uh, are offered this possibility. So how feasible is that to do here and how it could, uh, benefit the community? Well, unfortunately, I'm not a policymaker, so I don't know all the ins and outs of the regulations in terms of what a state forest can do. Um, so I kind of, I kind of uh, punt the ball here and say, hey, you all that are policymakers, look into this. <laughs> I'm an ecologist. But uh, what I can say is that, that Jackson State Forest is an incredible opportunity for carbon storage. And uh, there will be enormous resistance to this idea 
the people who run Calvin, uh, the, the, the forest, Jackson State Forest, uh, Cal Fire, uh, have been trained to manage timber for timber products. So there's going to have to be some sort of transition that uh, the state government's going to agree to to allow this to happen. And uh, again, I punt the ball to people who are better at, at uh, making friends than I am with, with the timber interests uh, to, try to, to try to forge those relationships. I think I burned all those bridges a long time ago. But I, I think it's a real opportunity and, and uh, a greater opportunity for forest uh, conservationists than anything we've seen before. But in the past, when we've tried to stop logging, it's always been sort of appeal to the heart, uh, you know, the redwood forests are beautiful. We love them. You know, they protect species. Please don't cut this forest. But here we're saying, let's let's measure the value here. What's the real value of timber products com compared to the the real value of of storing carbon? And I know that the timber products are at a high right now in terms of value, so it makes this argument even more difficult. However, when you think about redwood as a timber product. And think about what is it actually being used for? Fencing, decking, you know, things like that. Not for really building houses as much. Now this is gonna get tricky as well because there are those that argue that you can sequester the carbon in the timber product. In fact, there's been quite a bit, bit of literature published on this. And uh, so the idea being that you can grow a forest, then cut the forest and then build with the forest and you're sequestering the carbon in the built landscape. The reality is once you cut a redwood tree, it starts bleeding carbon immediately. And if you're using it for fencing and decking, et cetera, these sort of outdoor uses that redwoods are used for so much, the lifespan of that timber product is not very long. When I moved to Felton here, we had a 700 square foot deck that we had to tear down right away. It had been there for 20 years. And it was so rotten it had to come down. So we're talking, if, even if you take care of your redwood deck, how long might it last? 50 years? And if you're really lucky, compared to thousands of years of carbon being sequestered in a living, living plant. It's always surprising how few people on the coast know very much about the, um, the Jackson State forest. Partially, I think that... Uh, for many people, uh, it doesn't seem very uh, acceptable, the worries about the trails and so on. But maybe you could, uh, and other people know all sorts of uh, stuff about it, uh, the trail stewards today who are campaigning for, the, um, for a moratorium on logging, but maybe you could, you, you've spent some time in Jackson State. Maybe you could tell us a little bit uh, about, let, let's say we're, we're talking to someone who doesn't know very much about Jackson State Forest. What is the state of the forest today uh, in comparison to what, to an old growth forest or? Okay, yeah, and it's an interesting place. It's not um, advertised the way the state parks are. So not that many people go there. But uh, there are people who utilize it for a variety of reasons. Um, I have friends who are hunters who like to go there to hunt because you can hunt there. There's mountain bikers that go there to mountain bike. And the forest, Jackson State Forest is much like the rest of Mendocino County. Men Mendocino County was 
hit really hard by timber harvesting in the last century. Um, and so most of it, or all of it, essentially was harvested uh, with the exception of a few residual old growth trees. But a lot of us recovered significantly since then. And I spent most of my career studying the recovery of redwood forests following disturbance, particularly timber harvesting. And so what, what we found is that after about 40 to 50 years, there's kind of a tipping point where a redwood forest goes from this really dense kind of uh, thickety, difficult to travel through place to something that's starting to resemble an old growth forest. And after about 80 to 100 years, it's really starting to exhibit a lot of the features of an old growth forest. And in, within Jackson State Forest, there are quite a few areas that are in this zone of what we would call late cereal forest or mature second growth. So there's quite a few areas that are mature second growth that have passed that tipping point and are now recovering nicely towards old growth forest. And uh, I think what's concerning people in terms of the current uh, timber harvest plans is many of them are within these mature second growth stand. Because obviously that's where the valuable timber is, right? You're not gonna wanna harvest in the, in the 20 year old stand, there's nothing there. Uh, but in the 50, 60, 80 year old stands, 100 year old stands, there's, there's really valuable timber there. There's also really valuable ecological services there. And there's a lot of carbon sequestration going on there. So everything that makes a forest valuable for carbon sequestration also makes it valuable as a, a, for aesthetics, for wildlife habitat and for everything else that we're looking for. And, and uh, Jackson State Forest harbors quite a bit of that forest and a significant amount of mature second growth. Yes, very interesting indeed. Uh, we're all talking to you about these issues, uh, particularly because it's a big movement happening now, as you know, to trying to stop this uh, harvest that it was planned 50 years ago, but Kyle fire. And uh, so for me, it's always uh, has been quite puzzling to be in here and seeing constantly passing by those trucks with the big or sometimes not so big trees on the road up and down. Uh, it's a lot of private logging. So uh, Jackson Forest represents a small portion of the region that is being logged uh, for the decks and you know for this, this home use of the redwood heavily already. So that could be an argument to spare Jackson Forest. It's like, do we really need more of those trees to be in the market? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think globally, you're right. I think there's a lot of private lands that are being harvested. Um, in Mendocino County, Jackson State Forest is a significant area of land, however. And I think the other issue that we need to deal with is that Jackson State Forest provides a revenue stream, not just for the timber industry, but for the state. And um, we need to deal with that. We need to figure out how we're gonna replace that revenue stream. And we need to figure out what task we're gonna give to the highly trained uh, CAL FIRE personnel who have managed this area for years and, and are loath to let go of their, their carefully planned management of the forest. This is when they, they call it, it's another thing that always uh, calls my attention that they call it a working forest, mm -hmm. which it seems to me to insert an uh, ecological habitat 
into a category that is really not replicable. Uh, this idea also that the, the forest uh, will end, endlessly continue growing and being there for us. This idea that we can keep on just <clears throat> destroying what is around us. That's a false premise in my perspective, in my opinion. And um, I, I would like to hear more about these um, uh, plans, whether it's your opinion about this, because this was planned many years ago. And I, when I have talked to some locals, they have dismissed my concerns by just saying, well, was, this was a thought in depth when these plans were created, but mm -hmm. perhaps 50 years ago, we weren't so aware of the end of the natural resources that falsely are believed to be there available for us always, which is not the case. Yeah, and so this all goes back to the old debate, the conservation versus, versus preservation debate, Gifford Pinchot and, and John Muir, and uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who, what Teddy Roosevelt decided to do, because this debate couldn't be settled, was to divide public lands into two types of public lands, preserved lands and working lands. And so in California, we have the state parks, which are analogous to the national parks, and they're uh, intended to be preserved lands. And then the uh, state forests, which are analogous to the national forests, which are, are working forests. So that model has been in place for over a hundred years that we're gonna have these public working lands. And to get away from that model in Jackson State, I think will require you know, a significant alteration in how the state views those lands. And how we do that, I'm not exactly sure. I think um, one thing that people have talked about is sort of changing the designation of, of Jackson State Forest from a, a state demonstration forest to a um, state park, for example, or some other designation. Uh, we have the same issue here in Santa Cruz. We have the SoCal Demonstration State Forest and people every so many years get together and say, hey, what are we doing? Why are we logging this, this land? We should do something else, so we should preserve it. Um, and um, I say all this just as a caution. I, people, and myself included, uh, get very excited about, oh, we, we wanna preserve this and we're the local community and we're saying we wanna preserve it. Um, but there are, there are some pretty sizable hurdles to get over and it's good to recognize those hurdles and to train up for leaping those hurdles before running straight at them. The folks who manage uh, Jackson State Forest are quite sincere in their belief that they are managing it uh, for the benefit of mankind in the best way possible. So I tend to disagree in that I think that the Redwood Forest is more valuable in other ways, but we have to recognize that this other point of view exists and this other point of view has the backing of the state government of the timber industry and, and a, a lot of other powerful interests. That's uh, absolutely, uh, and anyone I think who's uh, gotten uh, interested in this sometimes feels like they're banging their head and, you know, famously <laughs> into the, the brick wall of bureaucracy. But um, Loretto, before we pause again, let me just, I could just throw in this. I would like to think that today, everybody says they're on board on the climate change issue from the president to the um, governor, to our congressman, to our state senator, 
uh, our local people, everyone says there's, they're on board. And uh, in California here, although uh, w- once again, uh, some people would like to deny this, but the state really is uh, awash in cash. This is a very rich state, even though there are a lot of poor people here. I would just throw it out that uh, now might be a time to uh, try to put some pressure on the elected officials to stand up to what they say uh, they believe in. I totally agree with you, Carl. And I think uh, this is a sentiment of many of us that live here and see the devastation of those well-thought uh, plans of harvesting the forests, you know, and this idea of the working forest. Uh, so I think it's important. There is some kind of a shift of understanding ecology and, um, and how these lands can be managed when already a lot of private business are profiting heavily from the forest. So the, the few uh, public lands uh, needs to be transformed. And I appreciate what uh, Will has said about finding policymakers and putting the pressure on them to make the change. So if you just join us, you are listening to Loreto Rojas and Carl Winslow. Today, we are the host of uh, Talking About California. And we are talking with Professor William Russell He teaches environmental studies at Cal State San Jose, and this is KZYX and Z, Mendocino County, community radio station, uh, listeners supported. So uh, continue this conversation. There is the issue with the fires. So I know you have done some work on this, on the restoration of the forest. Could you say something? Because we somehow here on the coast, we feel somehow protected from the fires because of the moist, because what you said at the beginning of our interview, that the forest, uh, the symbiotic relation between the ocean and the forest and the fog and how the dripping and, and the conditions per se of the redwood forest. Nevertheless, the fires seem to be getting closer and closer. And um, so how we can look at that issue with what we know now? Yeah, so it's a really interesting question with redwoods. A few years ago, I would have said that fires are not a problem for redwood forests. Uh, They're well adapted for fire. They recover rapidly after fire. We're currently doing a study in the CZU area in Big Basin where some of the highest intensity fires were and finding an incredible uh, resilience in redwoods. Very few redwoods died. There were a few big ones, um, some beloved trees that fell, but overall, the forest is recovering nicely and has done so after you know, big intense fires for, for thousands and thousands of years. The concern is that if the climate, if climate change reduces things like summer fog, which redwood forests are dependent on, and uh, winter rainfall as well, that soil moisture, fuel moisture will decline and eventually lead to more frequent and more intense fires in the Redwood region. And if that happens, I should probably say when it happens, if it's not already happening, um, the Redwood range could start to contract and the uh, nature of the Redwood forest could start to change. Uh, For those people who live on the edges of the Redwood forest, uh, you know, the Southern range of the Redwood forest and the Eastern Range of the Redwood Forest, or in Mendocino County, you have these wonderful edges with the pygmy forest. You'll see places where 
Redwoods grow as small, many-stemmed shrubs rather than as enormous uh, trees. And with enough frequent fire, our redwood forest may look more and more like that over time. Uh, we may be talking about the redwood shrubland in in a hundred years, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's that's the concern. And if it's okay with you, I wanted to return to something you were talking about before the break. Yes, please. Um, because we were talking about policy and how to make change, and I neglected to sort of uh, mention the the top down approach. And again, this is something I'm punting to you all, you young people, you uh, politically savvy people. Uh, the person who's really oversees all of this is the governor of California. And I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but not all blue candidates are, are forest protectors. Jerry Brown, for example, was a big supporter of the timber industry. And I actually, uh, I was interviewed for the State Board of Forestry under Jerry Brown. And the first question they asked me was, are you a team player? And so my, my, my answer was, what team? And right. my, <laughs> I was ready to ask you, what was the sport and the rules? What was the sport and who's the, the rules of engagement. <laughs> right. So if we really want to make these kind of changes, uh, the person we have to talk to is the governor. The governor appoints the Board of Forestry and the Board of Forestry makes all the decisions related to the state forests in Cal Fire, all of the decisions. So um, that's the way to, to make a serious and significant change. And, and I know our current governor is talking a lot about climate change. He's selling himself as a climate guy. Let's hold his feet to the climate fire and say, okay, you wanna, you wanna um, do something about climate change, let's protect these redwood forests. Right, because it's also the issue of the water, Newsom, was here recently in Mendocino. Uh, he was at the, Sono at the Mendocino Lake, which, uh, well, I learned a lot by talking to some locals about those lakes. Uh, but anyway, because the crisis with water is uh, under our noses. And I, I should say, you know, it's been draining uh, year after year, the wells in the, in the coastal areas. And of course we are facing, even the sheriff recently said that he never thought that water will be an issue that will bring public safety into the equation of their work. So this is quite concerning. So could you explain a little bit how the forest ties to the water also available for us in this area? Oh, this is a very good question. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. And it is becoming a more critical issue uh, with climate change. And I, I read recently that soil moisture levels are at a 20 year low in many parts of the redwood forest. So the relationship between redwoods and water are really interesting. Uh, they need a lot of water, we know that. They need a lot of precipitation, but they also, are a solution, just as they are with climate change. They add water to the budget um, by taking moisture out of the air, particularly you know when we get that nice fog in in Mendocino, the redwoods are collecting that water on their leaves. There's drip from that water that, that uh, waters the forest floor for other species. And they also absorb water through their stomata, through their pores and their leaves as do several of the other understory, redwood-associated understory species. There's some wonderful work done by someone named Emily Lim, who was a grad student at uh, UC Santa Cruz when she did her work 
um, on, on the use of fog water by redwood forest plants. So having a well-developed redwood forest, a mature redwood forest actually adds to the water budget. It brings water into the system. The water comes into the plants, the water drips down in the soil, it percolates into the soil. And so you end up with greater soil moisture um, and a greater overall water budget if you have a mature forest compared to a uh, less mature, a younger or a harvested landscape. Back to the governor for a minute um, and to listeners out there, um, I think a uh, listener can tell that um, we have a, a powerful argument on our side today and, and great spokespeople like Will Professor Russell, but it's very difficult to get beyond the gatekeepers of these politicians. But anybody listening who has a key, you know, <laughs> let us know about it. And, and let, you know, we need to get a chance to, to make our case. Some of them perhaps uh, are, are listening is uh, our experience, but uh, not, not nearly enough. So did we mention thinning and biomass uh, and that sort of stuff, just to clear up these last uh, bits? Sure. Uh, you want to talk about thinning? And what was the second thing you said? Well, the, there are all these other points, uh, which, you know, I, I'm not so open-minded on this, but all these other points about how to manage mm, a okay. forest, and they include thinning and, and fire and uh, biomass, is, is that right? And uh, just uh, maybe your take on that. Um, going out to the tree sit, for example, walking down the logging road, much of it, you look at it, it's impenetrable with brush and, and uh, the slash of past logging. What about the, these arguments like, and even old Trumpy's argument about getting out there with the brooms and what about the, those kind of arguments in terms of restoration? Shouldn't we be uh, hands-on, Will? <laughs> <laughs> well, very good question. Yeah, the restoration thing is a, a really sticky issue. Forest thinning can be an effective tool in some forest types under certain conditions. Let me start by saying that. In the Sierra Nevada, where we had clear cutting of pine forests 100 years ago that succeeded into fir forests that are very dense, these forests are, these uh, fir trees start dying. You have these huge mortality waves which can lead to catastrophic fires. And so thinning in some of those forest types can make sense. And those forests were managed by fire for 10,000 years by the indigenous people before, which kept them from becoming too dense. The redwood forest, however, is a completely different ecosystem. It's completely different because of the way that redwood forests regenerate. Their incredible regenerative potential, their clonal reproduction, and their ability to sprout roots or stems from any part of their trunk at any time. In other words, when redwood forests become dense, the way the fir forests do after a clear cut in the Sierra Nevada, instead of the trees dying, you may have uh, dying back of some of the stems, but those stems are, are still connected to the mother stump. And so the nutrients within those stems can be retracted into that mother stump and feed the other clones off of that stump. 
So you don't have these landscapes filled with uh, fire prone dead trees. Instead, you have a natural thinning progression that happens over uh, 50 to 80 years in the forest where slowly the excess stems die back the way a branch might die back on a tree and nutrients can be returned to that forest as a whole. So you don't have the fire hazard associated with the, the natural dieback. You don't have any of these other issues that you have with it. Redwood forests have an incredible potential for natural recovery. And so a lot of my research has been, and the research of my students has been focused on studying that natural recovery. And recently uh, we've had the opportunity to study uh, or to compare natural recovery with thin stands in Redwood National Park. A grad student of mine spent a summer up there, uh, Alyssa Hanover, I should give her a shout out. And we currently have a uh, paper in review about this comparison between what I call naturally recovering and, and mechanically thin stands. And what we found was that the thinning that was going on there, uh, which is a commercial thinning, I mean, they're selling the logs, was essentially analogous to a timber harvest in terms of how it set back the forest. All of the metrics that we use and that the National Park was citing as what their goals were, were set back by the thinning rather than promoted by the thinning. Things like species diversity, uh, the availability of uh, moisture for understory species, the density of trees even. Because the redwood trees sprout back, if you go in and thin, you're in the moment you're reducing the density, but within a couple of years, you've increased the density because you've increased sunlight in the forest floors and the, and the clonal sprouts begin again. So you're just starting the cycle all over with more clonal sprouts that will then need to be thinned again and thinned again and thinned again. So it's like a vicious cycle. So in redwood forests, I would argue that these thinning methods are really not helpful for forest recovery. There are some hands-on hands -on thing we can do for forest recovery, removing logging roads, uh, protecting streams, uh, things like that. But in terms of the dynamics of the vegetation, redwoods are really good at uh, doing their own thing in terms of recovery. They don't really need a lot of help. And as far as we've seen in terms of the data, most of the attempts at helping them has actually hindered them. Quite interesting indeed. And uh, yeah, you were at the beginning of the program reminded us that these forests date from the Jurassic time. So of course they are resilient and we hope to, well, I hope that I will survive many of my generations of, from, from my family and lineage, uh, which is the whole humankind really, because there is no separation in, in between us. But we have a few minutes left and I really wanted to ask you about education. Uh, here we are three educators together talking today and making a case to protect Jackson Forest. And, uh, and you have been doing this very interesting work about really looking into these methods that are, have been used in the schools and how to improve a real understanding of uh, the environmental issues 
And um, maybe this is a lesson that also our governor needs to take a class again. So could could tell us a little bit about your work with youth and children in this regard? Uh, yeah, and I'd say uh, most of my education now is with older kids <laughs> in their in their 20s. I did do some uh, some work uh, when I was younger. Uh, I did some work with high school environmental education, and I was a substitute teacher in Alameda for for a while. I think, but what now I'm seeing is. I've been working with some of the environmental education students at San Jose State. So these are college students who are going on to, to be teachers. And what we've seen, which is encouraging to me, is a enormous demographic shift, not just in California, but at San Jose State. And it's essential right now for environmental educators and for environmentalists to break out of the traditional white elitist way of thinking about environmental protection. So um, the idea that I wanna protect this forest so that I can walk around in it and enjoy it is a very elitist way to think about the forest. Um, if we're thinking about the, the population of California as a whole and what people need and what's gonna help them, we need to think about this in terms of the the next generation of people. So there's a couple different ways of thinking of this. One is increasing access for, for populations that weren't traditionally, didn't traditionally have access to natural areas. Um, and they didn't have access by intent. When you look at the creation of the national parks, for example, they were intended as a playground for the, for the wealthy elite. They weren't intended for the, for the populace. But by encouraging, encouraging non-traditional demographics to interact with natural areas and educating folks about the value of these areas, we could really have a huge impact on the future in terms of the way people think about the environment. This reminds me of those pictures of the famous uh, Ansel Adams where he will actually ask people to leave the area to have pictures where the picture these pristine uh, places without individuals, like they were empty of any human presence, which is a false premise. Right. Yeah. And uh, even heroes like uh, John Muir, for example, uh, he asked the people to leave permanently. Uh, there, were, there were people living in Yosemite and uh, John, John Muir felt that they were um, not scenic. <laughs> they didn't look good on the landscape and he didn't want to see them anymore. So, so we, we, meaning uh, the, the state of California, removed these people, the national government removed them. Uh, and this was a tragedy in a variety of ways. A tragedy is a human tragedy because of what these people endured. Um, it was also an ecological tragedy because what John Muir and Ansel Adams thought they were looking at this natural landscape, what they were looking at was a landscape that had been managed for 10,000 years, very carefully by people who knew what they were doing, who, uh, who had studied this landscape carefully a generation after generation. And by removing those people and their management, uh, we've, we've created all sorts of problems. A lot of the fire issues we have now are due to the fact that we 
ended a, a millennials long uh, prescribed burning program. And so now we're trying to reintroduce this in places and it's very difficult uh, because of, you know, the fuel loads have built up over a century and, and people have built in and moved into places like the Redwood Forest where, where very few indigenous people would choose to live. Um, so yeah. we've made it difficult on ourselves. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. I got excited, but uh, yes, yeah, no, no, I understand. It's, uh, it's. I think it's also uh, some kind of. I know we are almost out of time, but uh, I know there have been some efforts to understand more how uh, the humans have been part, a symbiotic part of a healthy forest, and this idea of keeping us outside of the forest and treating us like we don't understand what really is going on there is also detrimental for our planet and for our faith, as we said earlier. But uh, I think we are out of time, Carl. Okay, well, um, how can, can people contact you? Uh, certainly, um, the best way to contact me is uh, through my SJSU email. And um, that is will, W-I-L-L dot Russell at SJSU. Repeat that then. Will.russell at sjsu.edu. You can always, if you just Google Will Russell, I think, and Redwoods, you'll, you'll get to that page with my email on it. I don't keep that private, but if you troll me or spam me, I, I will not respond. Uh, <laughs> but if you have, if you, have uh, you know, interesting questions about Redwoods or better yet, you know, you know the governor and you want to set me up with a meeting with him, uh, Yes, please. I think we uh, can't really thank you enough. And I, I'm sure our <laughs> listeners will feel the same way. Just one thing, uh, I've been um, revamping a, a local website and uh, several of your papers uh, are available there. It's uh, the mendocinoinstitute.org. Will, thank you um, so much. And I hope we can talk to you again soon. And, and listeners should also know that we all need to be thanking a, a Will about the very specific and hard work he's been doing to help us here in uh, Mendocino County on many uh, fronts. So uh, this is uh, Cal Winslow and... Loreto Rojas. And I also <laughs> want to say thank you so much, uh, Will, for dedicating your life to protect the forest where we all live and uh, thrive if we are allowed to have the forest available and that it benefits to many people in the world. And uh, we talked today with Professor William Russell. He teaches environmental studies at Cal State San Jose. Uh, we think we all learned a lot and thank you so much, Will, again. And this was KZYX Mendocino Community Radio Station. Until next time. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.